Kevin Cullen, we had to get you out of bed about 20 minutes earlier. Are you all right? Um, I'm hanging in there, John. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a tough job, but somebody's going to do it. Let's uh, talk about something we were talking about this day last week. You were on the programme. You were heading into the courthouse mm-hmm. to hear what was going to happen to Jakar Zaniev. And what we've heard since is that what you didn't think was going to happen actually mm-hmm. happened, that he was sentenced to death. And this really has been the only talking point in Boston since. Do you think, as you said last week, the jury was the best place to make this decision. Do, do the yeah. people of Boston think it was the right decision? Well, not in the sense that clearly the vast majority of people in and around Boston do not do not support the death penalty. You know, the, the the contradiction here is to even get to get on that jury, you had to swear, you had to take an oath that you had no problem morally imposing it if you thought it was the the appropriate punishment. The the, the surprise here was that you know my belief always was there would be somebody on that jury who thought life in prison for a twenty one year old, particularly in solitary confinement, would be much worse than death. Uh, and that and that they would know that the death penalty is 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 far but assured. I mean, there's only been three people put to death since 1988 federally, so the chances that he is actually put to death are so minuscule. Uh, that's why I, th- I thought it was going to be a practical issue, not not a merciful issue. Mm-hmm. I think the difference with you know when we sat back and thought about it is people on the jury were exposed to evidence that nobody else was, including autopsy photos. That jury was inflamed. And at the end of the day, John, the defendant, Jahaz and I, did not give them a reason to show mercy. He showed absolutely no emotion whatsoever during the evidence that, present, that was presented about him putting a bomb in back of an eight-year-old boy mm-hmm. and standing there for four minutes while he considered what that bomb would do to that boy and other children who were, who were right four feet in front of him. So I, th- I think all of that combined that the, this was the jury, if they followed the law, really felt like they had no other alternative. Nobody has spoken publicly yet from the juror, from the jury, and I got to tell you, when they came in, they were wrecked. They were absolutely wrecked. They all showed emotion. Several were crying openly. And again, Jars and I have just sat there staring ahead. What struck me about it um, is that there there can't be closure. You mentioned the Richards, no. uh, Bill and Denise Richard, who they lost mm-hmm. their son Martin, and they can't get closure on this because now you're going to enter into the cycle of appeal. And will they? Won't they? Uh, every time it comes up, it'll be in the media, and it'll drag it all up for them again. If they locked him up and threw away the key, they might have had a better chance of moving on. With their that life. was certainly the, the, not only the Richard family. There were a number of victims who felt that way. Of course, there was no consensus among the victims either. Um, but obviously, it's not when, you, when these cases aren't just about how the victims feel. There's a wider communal issue, and that's a, there's a lot of people still scratching their heads, saying, "If this community is so opposed to the death penalty, how could this jury get it so different?" And again, that comes back to the composition of the. This is something that was set during the Rehnquist Supreme Court in the 80s, and it's it's sustained challenges all over the years. The idea that to be on a in a capital case, you have to be able to say that you can impose the death penalty. So that jury was not representative of this region. It just wasn't. That said, this jury was exposed to evidence that other people who you know who, who talk in an abstract and say, "Oh, I could never vote to give the death penalty to somebody." 
Maybe if they were sitting in that room and saw what these people saw, that that might have changed their mind. Uh, just one thing to finish up very briefly on. Uh, someone we'd be very familiar with over here, funny guy, finished up his show 33 years. David Letterman hosted The Late Show. Let's listen to some of the tributes paid to him. Dave, did you know that you wear the same cologne as Mama Gaddafi? Yes, yes, Barbara. Dave, I have no idea what I'll do when you go off the air. You know, I just thought of something. I'll be fine. I'm just glad your show is being given to another white guy. Thanks for letting me take part in another hugely disappointing series finale. And it was on like that for the entire programme. Barbara Walters, Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, and lastly, Julia Louis-Dreyfus there. He's gone. Like, like He's not gone because he's starting probably on another career and we'll see David Letterman crop up somewhere else. But this guy was an institution in the States. It was. I, you know, I, I, I hesitate to draw an Irish parallel, but I guess when Gable left the late, late, you might say that was sort of a, a real cultural uh, touchstone moment in Ireland. And this was similar because this guy kind of reinvented the late night show and took it from the Johnny Carson era of, you know, everybody was friends, all the Hollywood Rat Pack. There was a sort of a self-deprecating uh, humor in here and, and, and never taking anybody too seriously, including the Hollywood stars. And I think Letterman kind of captured that. And it, you know, there were five presidents, and one of them was dead. There were five presidents <laughs> that were recorded uh, saying goodbye to Dave Letterman. That, that's the kind of the, the cultural impact that this guy had. And, and uh, what I find you know, fascinating as well, James Corden, who is kind of a Marmite character over here, he is absolutely flying it in the show that followed Letterman as well. So, I mean, that guy has got a long career ahead of him as well. And absolutely. And he, that, it's the sort of that sort of del- self-deprecating sort of, I know I'm not really as good as I think I am. That kind of humor really resonates. And Dave Letterman was from Indianapolis. He was from the heartland. He was from middle America. And he got, he, he didn't just appeal to like the East Coast and left coast, uh, you know, sort of intelligentsia. He really had the whole country. And that, that's, that, that is something that hasn't been replicated. We'll see if anybody comes near that. Kevin Cullen of the Boston Globe. Pleasure as always. We will talk to you next week. Thanks, Jonathan. Still to come on News Talk Lunchtime, Mick Clifford. Uh, we didn't bother moving him. He's still on after one o'clock on the week that's just passed by. Let's have a listen back to how the last few days sounded. You'll be given two ballot papers, a white ballot paper for the marriage referendum and a green ballot paper for the presidential age. It's green for the park and white for the wedding dress. At the time, I could not imagine how we would come to terms with the anguish of such a deep loss, since for me, Lord Mountbatten represented the grandfather I never had. It seemed as if the foundations of all that we held dear in life had been torn apart irreparably. There's a lot of hardcore Eurovision fans who are like, are you going to have such a depressing downbeat song for Eurovision? Honestly, like, it's a song contest. It's subjective. Music is subjective. That's why it's so hard to... It's so unpredictable. It's a lottery. Well, Mick Clifford, did you vote? 
For the Eurovision? Yeah, absolutely, of course. Uh, no, I missed it, Jonathan. I was devastated this morning when I heard it that we didn't get anything through. I, I just don't know whether I'll be able to carry on, but I'll try. <laughs> Do your damn. But have you actually cast your ballot yet? Please remember the moratorium. Don't stray outside the lines. I won't. Have you actually gone to the polling station yet? I did indeed, and the only thing I'll say is I was surprised it seemed busier than normally the case, certainly in terms of referendums anyway. Okay, and uh, that is something that's coming through. We heard about 15, 16% in most polling stations up till around 12 o'clock. So that, that would put it on a par with a general election for that time, but a long day to run yet. Um, let's talk, uh, we can't talk about the, the referendum, but we can talk about other things. Um, Prince Charles' visit is one of them. A lot of focus on it, um, but I just noted with interest, I was watching the BBC 10 o'clock news on the Wednesday night, I think, which was the second night of the visit. And it was story four or story five, and it was covered but not to any huge degree is is that an indication of how while it was significant it wasn't in any way close to being as significant as the Queen coming oh no no comparison I mean he has been here before you might recall I think it was 1995 was when John Bruton was Mr Bruton described as the best day of his life which is a very curious thing it makes you wonder about things but uh, I think we probably I, I, certainly in terms of the media coverage Jonathan I think things went overboard look on, on a personal level for the man visiting Mullock Moore was very poignant there's no question about that he was very close to Lord Mountbatten and to the young lad who was his, his his godson who also died on that occasion that element of it is entirely understandable I think overall though we went a bit over the top media wise with the yeah, whole thing there was a criticism that we were forelock tugging do you think that that's a bit that's a bit much now come on we had to we had to mark the occasion it was significant he did shake Jerry Adams hand you know, we had to report on that. That's not furlock talking. I know. That's just reporting on, on what is legitimate news. Ah, yeah, but you, you can spend a long time reporting on it. No, but it wasn't so much. It's more, look, it's not just the royal family. It's not just Prince Charles. It's when anybody of that ilk comes here, it's like, don't you love us? Don't you love us? You know, all this sort of thing. As well as, I have to say, what keeps coming across is everything is seen as an opportunity to flog the country for tourism. Now, it's no big deal. There's nothing a hell of a lot wrong with it, but it's just, it can get a bit tiresome after a while. I think, you know, we can go overboard in the whole thing. Um, one thing that uh, we haven't gone overboard enough on in the eyes of those affected by it, the standard variable mortgage story. Michael Noonan now saying, oh, I've spoken to the banks and I'm confident there's going to be one, if not two cuts this year. A central bank are waiting in the wings to swoop in and put pressure on if needs be. Are the banks that malleable, right? Six of them went in, had a chat with Michael Noonan. They've had lots of chats with the two finance ministers during the crisis. Very rarely did anyone walk away thinking, right, we have the banks now on the run. And I don't think we have them on the run now. No, are they malleable? The other issue is, you know, we we were told repeatedly, and I was actually there for the Bank of Ireland AGM when Richie Boucher touched on it, that this was not profiteering. He he was challenged by Brendan Burgess on that occasion, that this was not profiteering. They were just about making a profit and covering their costs. If that's the case, are they suggesting they're willing to take a loss? I mean, Jonathan, the way I'd look at this thing is... The big problem we have here, well, obviously there's a problem with tracker mortgages and they're getting caught with that, but that's their own bad management. The big problem is there's very little competition. And the reason there is very little competition is because the economy went over a cliff, driven principally by reckless lending on behalf of the banks. So the banks put the economy into the scenario it was in to a large extent, no, not exclusively, and yet those that are still standing appear to be profiteering in areas where they think they can get away with it. I mean, it 
it is a crazy situation. It is also, for that reason, a highly political situation. And in a year of election, Michael Noonan is going to do his damnedest to do something. What is interesting is, would he be doing the same thing on behalf of the citizens if there wasn't an election around the corner? Now, the thing is, I, I made the point earlier on, it sound, he sounded like a fella on a high wire and he could fall off on either side at any moment. You know, the electorate is going to be watching this very closely and those who are paying through the nose for mortgage rates, looking at the fella next door with the same house who's on a tracker, he's going to be very keen to find out what happens. Oh, of course. And, I mean, look, once those type of noises that have come out that there are going to be uh, rate cuts, you can be damn sure there will be. Because, I mean, again, it's back again to the whole political um, milieu that, that this is in. Michael Noon isn't going to come out and give a hostage to fortune when there's a, a general election a couple of months down the line. But, I mean, it's something that will require constant vigilance. It's also something that, whereas perhaps it's not going the whole hog in bringing legislation to control it, I think there's certainly a greater role for the central bank in having something to do with it. Um, because we're, like, we're, not, we're not in a normal market. No more than we weren't in a normal market we, when we things went over cliff. We haven't been in a normal market for the last, if you include when it lost its head for about 10 or 12 years. Yeah, precisely. And yet, the banks are attempting on one hand to claim this is a normal market and they're only applying market uh, rules. But um, I don't think it's going to wash. And put it this way, there'll certainly be relief this side of the general election. What happens after that will be more interesting again. Now, um, we are in a bit of a dark cave when it comes to what has happened between the teachers and the unions. A deal would appear to have been done that has pushed the strike at least into abeyance. It's going to go for a vote in the autumn after the school holidays. The detail will come out later on after it's discussed by union executives. But who's back down here? Because both sides had dug in. Janice Sullivan was the one who'd previously moved. So the suspicion would be that she moved again, not the unions. Yeah, Jonathan, this thing is depressing and I think there's no other word for it. What is at issue here is a dogfight, as you pointed out, between the minister and the teachers' unions. Who who is putting in, in... primary position, the education of the young and what kind of education is required. Look, I think the reforms, they've been been on the table for 20 years. Rory Quinn, to be fair, he was very ambitious in what he brought in. I I would have said he was correct in doing so. However, politically, he did it at a time when there had been huge cutbacks and there was huge resentment in areas in the teaching profession, understandably on a lot of fronts, and to bring in radical change at that stage was always going to be difficult. There's no question the government have backed completely down. The teachers' union, to a large extent, have one. Is the teachers' union stance representative of all teachers? I would have my doubts. I would also have my doubts in terms of the the validity of their concerns. I can understand them up to a point, but ultimately the losers in this are not the government or the union. They're the kids who are going to be sitting there junior cert and doing so in a way that is not most advantageous for them in trying to learn in the broadest sense about education. Okay, Mick Clifford, Special Correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Pleasure as always. We'll talk to you again. Uh, Just one bit of breaking news. Three Gardaí have reportedly been injured at Clockerhead in County Louth. Uh, Paul Williams reporting in the Irish Independent. It's understood the Gardaí were hurt when they were trying to execute a warrant. Their injuries not 
believed to be life-threatening. We don't know the exact, exact nature of their injuries either or how they came to sustain them. We'll try and get more information on that, but I suppose the important part out of that is that the injuries are not life-threatening. To Northern Ireland now, a review into the North's Public Prosecution Service, how it handled three cases of abuse against Maria Cahill and two other women by an IRA member has just been released. The report was carried out by the former Director of Public Prosecutions in England, Kerr Starmer. Maria Cahill alleges she was raped by an IRA man when she was 16. The case against her abuser collapsed and Maria Cahill alleged the Police Service of Northern Ireland failed to adequately investigate the case. Starmer found that the PPS failed around a number of issues. Belfast-based security correspondent Alan Murray is with us. Alan, uh, just going down through this, we only got our hands on it a short time ago, it looks quite damning. Yes, it. if you use the word dithering between prosecution councils or the phrase dithering, you would say, well, maybe that sums it up because there were different issues involved here. Some of the people involved uh, faced sexual offences in relation to three uh, persons, one of them, Maria Cahill. Uh, they also faced membership of their IRA charges. And this was, in a sense, intertwined because the point is made that Maria Cahill and the other uh, women who claimed sexual assault were, they said, frightened because they believed one of the men involved, the man who committed sexual assaults, was a member of the IRA. And this would have explained why if it had been raised, and it probably would have been raised by the Defence Council, why nothing had been said for 10 years before matters were made known to the police in uh, 2010. Now, this issue of the membership of the IRA, allegedly, and the sexual assaults and the intertwining of these things bedeviled the considerations of the senior council and the different figures in the Crown Prosecution Service in Belfast. The Public Prosecution Service issued a statement, uh, the top line of which says that the review found no improper motivation in the decisions or actions taken by the team. So they weren't motivated particularly by anything, but that doesn't excuse what followed. No, they were not motivated, uh, Sir Kerr Stormer says, by that. But what you get when you read through it all uh, is that really there were difficulties which were involved in this from the outset because of the intertwining of these two issues. And successfully, in 2012, the defence team put a proposition to the judge that really the membership charges should proceed first. Now, that being the case of a non-jury trial, and the fact that the prosecution had not worked up that case to the point where they could say, yes, go ahead, we can work at that tomorrow, that meant that the prosecution had to tell the three uh, people who alleged sexual abuse that their cases would be put back for quite a long time. And there was another issue about the editing of their statements so that if the cases were separate, the sexual abuse cases and the membership cases, then there had to be no mention in the sexual abuse cases of the allegation that the people who had carried out the assault or the person and the people who had investigated it actually had investigated or had anything to do with it. So by the time that went on, obviously two of the uh, people, the women, said, look, we can't put up with this anymore, we're not going to proceed. And Maria Cahill was told that, look, this is going to be delayed, the sexual abuse one, until the membership case is dealt with. She said, well, look, that's it, I'm finished, I'm not going to head with this anymore. Alan Murray in Belfast, thank you for that. Maria Cahill is now on the line. Maria, what is your reaction to the publication of this review? <laughs> 